0: Send your children to Geneva College where they can be taught by the Sadar family. There's more than one there. Let's turn to Romans 1. Please welcome tonight David and Vicki Pressler, our friends from Springfield, Ohio. Right out here, right, they drove a long way to be here. And David's mom and dad are key members in our Mississippi group, and they've been in the ministry of the word for time immemorial, and uh, very good to have you guys with us. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Courageous crew tonight. What's the temperature out, like 4? 4? a spring day in Vermont. Tonight's message is called ITMGTTLJC. So keep that in mind. I know you got that down already in an age of texting. A couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, we are truly grateful for the privilege of gathering together, gathering together physically, where, according to Second John and verse twelve, our joy is full seeing one another face to face. For this meeting, like all meetings when we gather together, is an anticipation and a preview and a prefiguring of our great and grand reunion in which we will see our Lord Jesus Christ face to face and all together. We anticipate this with great expectation and with confident anticipation. We pray that you'll use tonight's message to portray the person of Christ to our heart so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in his face, that shone into Paul's heart, that radiates from his heart, onto the page in Romans that radiates from Romans, the epistle, into our hearts and radiates from our hearts to all we know and all those who are dear to us, those that we meet in the everyday existence of this life. That's a lot to ask for, Father, but we thank you for all of it with the confidence that you'll answer all of our prayers and then some. For we're praying to the God who is in the business of exceeding way beyond our imagination and our expectation. Thank you, Father, that you are that kind of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in what has proven to be and keeps proving to be an effective strategy in Romans. It's called the pincer movement. That's a military movement, of course, but I'm using it. In Romans, we're approaching Romans with a flank toward the center from Romans 1 and a flank from the right flank, Romans 16, the other pole of Romans pushing toward the center. And we're finding a tremendous correspondence in Romans one, 1 with 16, and then Romans 1, one with 15. You'll find a correspondence of 2 and 3 with 14 and 15, and on and on it goes until we press toward the center that might be something like 5 through 8, or even 5 through 11. And we're finding out the purpose of Paul in this pincer movement, P-I-N-C-E-R. And it's effective. So I'm going to continue in that. So we'll be teaching not only from Romans 1, but also Romans 15 tonight, and also a little bit maybe in Romans 16. And so we start with Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. And I want to spend a little time on this because every verse is extremely rich in Romans, and, of course, every word of God is pure and worthy of our deep consideration. Romans 1.8. Paul says, first... I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news about your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Please notice that. Paul may have given thanks at one time before God revealed his son to him. He may have surely given thanks to God, but he did not give thanks to his God through Jesus Christ. People may give thanks to God today, they call him God, or the universe, or as someone recently said to me, to what or whoever they were thankful to, because of a vague consciousness of a higher being. That's what comes through what what people call natural theology, which I call in brief nat-theo, In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, through creation, they have a vague God consciousness, or it's not even a God consciousness, but it's the consciousness of a higher being, and it's very vague. But those who have come to know the true God in his Son, Jesus Christ, give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ, very specifically. We too have the right to refer to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as my God. And this may seem strange in an era in America where, oh my God, is said flippantly and with an off-putting, mindless off-handedness. and a nauseating repetitiveness in our culture today. So how refreshing it is to hear the man who knows God through Jesus Christ say, my God. In Philippians 4.19, the same apostle, writing similarly as a slave of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.1, assures the saints by saying, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As those who have been given faith, we are given with our faith the privilege to call the true God my God. Because Jesus gave us permission to do so when he taught us how to pray, saying, Our Father. And when, in his resurrected condition, he said to Mary of Magdala, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God there he gives us the permission to call the one whom he calls my god my god the one he calls father my father the lord jesus christ who said i thank you father in matthew 11:25 he burst into a sudden thanksgiving right in public, and he said, I thank you, Father, that you've chosen to reveal these things, to disclose these things to children and to hide them from the wise and the prudent, those who consider themselves wise. But he who said, I thank you, Father, gives us permission to say, I thank you, Father. The Lord Jesus Christ who cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Assures us that he will never leave us, never forsake or abandon us. And that nothing can or will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are allowed to say, My God. My God. When speaking of the one whom Jesus called, my God. And we're allowed to say, My Father. My Father. Oftentimes this has been my total prayer as I sometimes am just ready to sleep, I'll say, my father, and I give myself unreservedly to you tonight as I go to sleep, and I want to wake up in the morning with thoughts of you, thoughts from you, thoughts I can follow in your word. He invariably answers those requests, and if he doesn't, He has some other thing he wants to draw my attention to. And he does. My father. It is through Jesus Christ that we thank him. And that's all these things are so important. Every word, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we can thank him. And indeed we do. And we call him Abba, my Father, because the Spirit of the Son has been sent into our hearts, crying Abba, Father. Imagine a world in which instead of cursing with the name of Jesus Christ and stupidly parroting the phrase, oh my God, or now it's been In text form, O-M-G. Imagine people saying from the heart, I thank my God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're texting, that's I-T-M-G-T-T-L-J-C. It might take longer, but once you get that word in there, all you got to do is do it and it'll come right in. Now, when I say this, it's not that we condemn the world for saying what they say. For we who have been called out from this world can only call God the Father by the Spirit who is given to us. And it's only because of the Spirit of the Son who indwells us. And we can only call Jesus Christ the Lord. By the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ then is a crucial phrase in Romans 2.16 also we find that phrase again. Romans 2.16. Because there is a day in which God will judge the secrets of men and women. It can be frightening if it weren't for the phrase through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, through the Lord Jesus Christ, God will judge or evaluate the secrets of men and women. And then he says, it's through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. The gospel of God about his son can also be called my gospel. And Paul calls it my gospel in Romans 2.16. He does it again in Romans 16 at the end in our pincer movement. He does it again in 2 Timothy 2.8. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ according to the flesh, the seed of David, risen from the dead. So Paul says, yes, there is that day when God will judge the secrets of men, but God will judge them through Jesus Christ. To that, I say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Imagine if the secrets of our hearts and the secret sins, as Psalm 19 calls them, that we conceived of throughout our lives we were simply judged by God. But they will be judged through Jesus Christ. The judge who was judged for us. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. We, and the whole world for that matter will be judged in righteousness. Acts 17.31, Paul before the council at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, a symposium of philosophers. He says there's coming a day when God will judge the world, and he says oikomene there, not cosmos, but oikomene, the whole inhabited planet of humankind in all of its times, all of its sequential times. The only way to judge all of humanity all at once in all of its sequential times is through the resurrection of all humanity. That's when, in Luke 3, 6, all humanity altogether will experience the salvation of the Lord. That's when, according to Revelation 1, 7, harking back to Zechariah twelve ten, every eye will see him. That's when Philippians two ten and 11 says, every tongue will acknowledge him. Every knee will willingly genuflect Every mouth speak in praise toward him. And in that world from then on, people will say things like, I thank my God through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so... Something really popped today when I read this Acts 1731 when Paul said there will come a day when the whole world will be judged in righteousness. And righteousness, as we know, is a key word in Romans, and it means an act of divine deliverance. We will be judged, the whole world will be judged in an act of divine deliverance. By the man he has appointed, granting Your translation may say proof there, granting proof to all in resurrecting him from the dead. But why does the word proof come out in the Greek as faith, piston? So we have to read it this way. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness By a man whom he has appointed, granting faith to all in resurrecting him from the dead. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God grants faith to all of humankind. Because Christ's obedience to the extent of death was rewarded by God raising him from the dead. He was handed over for our trespasses and he was raised for our rectification in Romans four twenty five. whose sins was he handed over for on the cross if not the sins of the whole world according to 1st John 2 2 then whose re- rectification whose justification was he raised to bring about if not all humankind in fact he goes on to say that pretty bluntly in Romans 5.18. So Acts 17.31 could be translated, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, the inhabited world of mankind, by the man he has appointed, granting faith to all. God judges all mankind by granting faith to all of them, and he judges them in an act of deliverance, a salvific act, an act of acquittal, an act of rectification. By raising him from the dead. In the day when God judges the secrets of men and women. When he judges the world of human beings. In all of their times. Faith. Will have been given to them all. So the whole world. Will open their mouth and praise to him. Again the word is. Oikomene here. For the whole world in Acts 17.31. God will judge the world, the whole inhabited planet Earth, in all of its successive and sequential times. And that's, again, oikomene. That's not cosmos there. Oikomene means inhabited Earth, the inhabited planet. Because he will have given all of them faith because Jesus Christ, who was handed over for our sins, the sins of the whole world, was resurrected for our justification, our rectification, or the rectification or the setting right that consists of life for the whole world because of the obedience of the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a doomsday Pronouncement that he will judge the world in righteousness. That's the greatest announcement of happiness and joy there can be. Now, Paul, in this light, and with this light on in his soul, remember one of the key words and one of the alternative titles for our study now, Romans the Epistle, is Reading Romans with the Light On. In this light, and with this light on in his soul and spirit, Paul writes to thank his God through Jesus Christ for how many of the saints in Rome? Some of them the Jewish ones, the Gentile ones, the ones who happen to be slaves of Caesar, or the some some who are imperial slaves have been highly promoted, the ones who meet in house churches like Prisca and Achilles house church in the suburbs. Or the poor saints only that meet in the tenements, the slaves and the freemen, the poor freemen in the tenement section of Rome? Or did he say all saints? I think he says, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. For all of you. He says all, and he means all of them, regardless of the divisiveness that fragments and polarizes them for the time being. I remember Colonel Thiem years and years ago did a series on fragmentation and polarization among believers. Fragmentation. And he used the analogy of the fragmentary grenade and how fragmentation leads to polarization. Polarization leads to a kind of a hostility, divisiveness among the saints. That was happening in... A phenomenal way in Rome. As we're going to see when he addresses the problem, he addresses the problem throughout Romans. And I was saying the other day when you try to get to the heart of the matter with Paul, you always do, because Paul is always at the heart of the matter. Everything he says is at the heart of the matter. Right here, he's trying to do what he tries to do throughout the entire epistle promote unity. Induce humility that promotes unity that results in the proclamation of the gospel and the hearing of the word of God where it's never been heard before. He intends to go to Spain, remember. He intends to go to Spain through Rome. He wants to go to Rome and meet a united assembly of believers there because he wants, quite plainly, to receive fruit from them when he gets there. And that fruit includes a tactical support for him to finish what God gave him to do a mission to the world of Gentiles that began with Jerusalem fanned out all the way to Illyricum in Eastern Europe and was going to end in Spain. And in Spain, the refined Greco Romans and the religious Jewish Christians considered the Spanish To be barbarians. So Paul opens Romans and he said, I have a debt to pay to the Greek and the Jew and also to the barbarian. In quotes. And so here he says. All he means all of them, regardless of the divisiveness that fragments and polarizes them at the time. And the work of unifying the saints in Rome, therefore, has already begun right here in Romans 1.8, right after the main greeting in 1.7. It approaches a climax in Romans 15. Let's look at 15.6. You'll see where he's headed from the pincer movement. Let's see how we can press from this other flank toward the center. In Romans 15.6. Now may the God of patience... Hupamone here is not macrothemia, as in 2 Peter 3.15, which has been our Sunday sermon title for a few messages. Now, may the God of patience and encouragement grant that you be of the same mind and intent. That sounds somebody who has said, like, groupthink. Let me tell you something. Groupthink is all right if the group is thinking with the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not grasp for equality with God because he already had it. But he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of divine prerogatives. He became in the likeness of sinful flesh. In fact, he became in vocation a slave became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Let this mind be in you. So now may the God of patience, or we could say endurance and encouragement, grant that you be of the same mind and intent as Christ Jesus. And the word here, the phrase Dia Jesu Christu, which we'll have in print on the website by the middle of January probably. Dia Jesu Christu. Through Jesus Christ in one eight finds a mate here with kata Christon Yesun in fifteen five. So we find in the pincer movement one eight matched in fifteen five. So that with one impulse, he says, and with one mouth, you may glorify. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see the the matching of one eight with fifteen, five, and six here the the intent of all the saints with one mouth. this reminded me of acts three twenty one God spoke through the one mouth of all the prophets, and they all spoke of one thing, apocastasis, the restoration of all things, apocastasis. So when all the believers speak with one mouth to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, they are speaking from a knowledge of a universal reconciliation. And so Paul brings the knowledge of universal reconciliation, yes, but he does it to bring to bear on a situation in Rome of divisiveness, fragmentation, polarization, mutual resentment that prevents the gospel from going to places where it was never heard or where it was only heard. America is not a place where the name of Jesus has never been heard, but in a lot of America, America is a place where the name Jesus Christ is only heard in derision, scorn, cursing, and empty liturgy. America needs to be evangelized with Paul's gospel because that which he calls my gospel is God's gospel about his son. Here, the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually conveys the right sense. He says in verse 16 or fif- fifteen six, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. So the pincer movement, which is a dual movement from the front to the center and from the back to the center of Romans the epistle, which is my strategy so far at least, allows us to see the purpose of Paul to unite the fragmented and polarized cells of saints in Rome. The ultimate reason is for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. The practical purpose which happens to be submitted to this end of glorifying God, is for the expansion of Paul's effective missionary strategy to Spain. You're in Romans 15. Look at 15, 24 to 28. I'm not going to exegete it. I'm not going to do that yet. I'm going to do it in the future, not tonight. He's talking about a mission to Spain. In 15:21, he cites Isaiah 52:15. Regions where the name of Yahweh, as Yeshua, has not been heard. Paul doesn't plan to build on another man's foundation and Rome has been built on another foundation. So he goes there not to win converts, but he goes there to have some fruit among them so that he can go to win converts in Spain. The pincer movement then still works. Note that Paul thanks God that the report of their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. The news of their faith. You say, why would that be important? Because the faith happens to be had by thousands of people in the heart of the Roman Empire whom both Daniel and John in Revelation saw as the beast. People with faith in Jesus Christ as the King of Kings In the belly of the beast called Rome. That's a big deal. And it's all over the world. That at the center of this Roman Empire are thousands of saints with faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just that hundreds, if not thousands, of people have been granted faith, but that hundreds, if not thousands, of people have been granted faith who happen to live and work in the epicenter of the Roman Empire, right at the heart, again, of that which Daniel in chapter 7 and John in Revelation 13 called with great creative satire, the beast a horrific, devouring beast, a beast who is to be conquered by one like a son of man who shares that dominion with the people called the saints of the Most High. I think Paul gets the word saints, which he uses in all of his epistles from Daniel seven twenty-seven, twenty-eight. 28. So you have Daniel 7.27 compared with Romans, 1, 7. Romans 5, 1.7. Romans 5.17, we reign in life by one Christ Jesus, we the saints. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Romans 16.20, God will crush under your feet shortly Satan. Satan being the name for all of the powers, supernatural and extrahuman that are against us and are too great for us. But not too great from the one for the one who indwells us. So look at Romans 1 9. See, it's kind of a smooth exegesis here. Certainly God is my witness, he says. Certainly God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. In the gospel. This we have to fan out a little bit to give the sense. Certainly God is my witness. Whom I serve, Paul says, with my spirit in the preaching of the gospel about his son. There it is again. That I constantly mention you. God knows this and bears witness to it. I constantly mention you. In my prayers, verse 10. Always asking in addition, he's saying, always asking in addition. In other words... If Paul has a kind of prayer list, it's a mental list he goes through. He always mentions the Roman saint. And sometimes prayer is just a mention. Many times I've laid in bed and said, my father, and I'll see your face. And if I know your name, I present you by name. Just here they are. Hey, my father, here they are. And if I don't know your name, and sometimes I've been introduced to people five times in 30 years. Same people sometimes because it's just I know your face. I know your soul. Sometimes I forget names. But if I don't know your name, I present your face. And sometimes I've gone through the whole Sunday congregation. And just mentioned you, mentioned you, mentioned you. Because if I had a paragraph for every one of you, I wouldn't have time to study. And then I'll come to church and I'll say, oh, man, I missed them. Oh, man, I missed them. You know. It's usually Mike. I miss you all the time, Mike. No, I I get Mike. I get you all the time. But he says, I mention you. He can take it. That's why I dole it out to him. Asking, he says, meaning I ask in addition to mentioning you, that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He wants to get there. He doesn't say like he did to the Thessalonian church, I tried to come to you many times, but Satan hindered me. This time he's got so many other things to do. One of the things he has to do is collecting millions of dollars in what today's money would be from the churches in Achaia, southern Greece, and northern Greece, Macedonia. He's collected a massive collection that he wants to bring to Jerusalem, to the saints there in Jerusalem. And he prays, you'll see that in Romans 15 too, he prays that that collection will be accepted by them because they don't really care for Paul much in Jerusalem. If you read Acts 21, they all came down on him to tear him to shreds. But to promote unity, he collects from the Gentile saints. He said, hey, you guys have received so much of their spiritual heritage, maybe you can give some of them some of your material blessing because they're persecuted, the saints there. So... One of the reasons he doesn't get to Rome immediately is because he wants to go to Jerusalem first with this collection that's spoken of in Second Corinthians 8 and 9, which shows me that Second Corinthians was written before Romans. But, so he's not prevented by Satan. He's got a lot of other stuff to do before he gets to Rome, but he's saying, Father, if it's somehow in your will, I want to get to Rome. Now, what does Paul mean, backing up to verse 9? What does he mean by God whom I serve with my spirit? What does he mean by my spirit? I mean, do you capitalize spirit, S-P-I-R-T-I-R-I-T, or do you, is it Paul speaking of his human spirit? One may answer, well, that means his own human spirit. And I, I can accept that. After all, in Romans eight sixteen, Paul distinguishes our spirit from the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit. Distinguishing my human spirit from the Holy Spirit. He testifies or bears witness that I am the child of God. He bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. Children and if children then we're heirs and on and on he goes from Romans 8 16 onwards So Paul must be speaking this person would say about his own human spirit now you see what I'm doing here I'm saying what somebody else is saying And you know what Paul does in Romans a lot of that what somebody else is saying He has an interlocutor he has an imaginary conversation partner And some of the Romans, especially early on, and all the way through Romans 4, and then again in Romans 9, and really throughout much of the epistle, Paul is having somebody else talking. That's what I'm doing here. So I say, one person may say, Paul must be speaking about his own human spirit. But then I would reply, though, that Paul has already set a kind of precedent by calling God, my God, my God elsewhere he famously calls Christ Jesus my Lord especially in 3 8 I consider all these things to be lost and count them and write them off as loss and count them but scubula refuse excrement if you want other words if you're inclined for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord so he has my father he has my Lord, so my answer, would. why can't he say my spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit? You See, now we've got a dialectic going. A dialectic doesn't mean one's right, the other's wrong. It means that there's, one can learn from the other guy, and the other guy can learn, and it goes back and forth until you build what might be the right answer. So why can't he call the Holy Spirit my spirit? It was no coincidence, and this happens all the time because I divide up my time, several hours reading commentaries, several hours reading theological treaties and things like that. And then I go to my study and hammer this out like I did, like I'm doing with you now. But it was no coincidence that reading from the epistle to the Romans, I just finished Karl Barth's. Phenomenal commentary on the epistle to the Romans. He ha- I happen to have read this pretty recently while he was commenting on Romans fourteen eighteen. He says this. We are the servants of Christ in the Holy Ghost. That's his words. In the Holy Spirit. Then he says, never in our spirit. And he has the big caps, O-U-R. His caps, O-U-R. Never in our spirit, he says on page 520. Then he says, if we choose to serve Christ in our spirit, O-U-R, caps, then even our free detachment will mean that our spirit, and then he says, and when are we ever rid of this danger, is taking its unto itself glory. If it's only our spirit that we serve with, then we take unto ourself glory. And you see this all the time. You might like a preacher or a teacher or an evangelist or a theologian, but you, you like them because of their spirit, not because the Holy Spirit has dissolved them and consumed them to reveal Christ in them. That's the tragedy of ministry. And he says, so when we serve only in our spirit, We are in this danger, and when are we ever rid of this danger? And I say, hey, Carl, you're exactly right there, buddy. We're never out of danger as preachers of taking unto itself glory. And then he said, and we ought not to be surprised if we are to be found neither well-pleasing to God nor approved of men. Because all our lives we served with our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. That's my additional comment. So there's an answer to this dilemma where Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit. Is he going against Karl Barth by saying, I'm serving with my spirit and therefore taking glory to himself? Or should it be he serves with my spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit? I think the answer to this dilemma is, about who is my spirit is found in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Why? Because there it says, anyone who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Anyone who is joined to the Lord, and that word joined is the same word used for man and woman joined in marriage, united. Anyone who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. To serve God in or with my spirit, then therefore, is to serve while joined to the Lord as one spirit. Now, if you follow this logic and follow this reason, I think you're going to find the interpretation of what Paul means here. It means to serve with the Holy Spirit, actuating and activating our spirit. And our spirit isn't just a third of what we are. Our spirit is a word for our total Being the total phenomenon of our human being when jesus said father into your hands. I dismiss I commit I entrust is better I entrust my spirit He wasn't just saying i'm entrusting the spirit being in me the spirit in me He was saying my whole being i'm placing my whole being into your hands and the father answered by raising not just his spirit, but his body from the dead. You see, when we have Romans 12, 12, 1, I urge you to present your body. He's not just talking about a bodily presentation. The body there is a figure of speech for the total person. I present my whole self to you, father, whatever that means. And I find myself doing this pretty repeatedly lately. because i believe that a preacher of the gospel ought to be dissolved in the preaching that he should be immolated remember those i don't know if you remember in the vietnam era there were buddhist monks they set themselves on fire and they called it self immolation it was in the news all the time today it would be on the news every 15 minutes you'd see the same guy burning up for and that's cuz we get riddled with that stuff now But it was called self-immolation. It was a form of protest against the Vietnam War. These guys just burned themselves up. But I think in a figure of speech, that's what happens to the preacher. He is immolated, consumed by the fire of God's love in his preaching. He's out of the picture more and more, or she is out of the picture. To serve God then with my spirit, as Paul says, or in my spirit, is to serve while joined to the Lord as one spirit, is to serve with the Holy Spirit actuating and activating our spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in the whole body of Christ corporate. He indwells, he resides, he's the resident good, not the resident evil. The Holy Spirit, Resides also in each individual member. In each individual men- member, he expresses Christ in a distinctive way, not in the same way. He expresses Christ differently in each distinct individual, but it's the same Christ. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 12:5 and following where he speaks of the charismata or the grace endowments or what we call the spiritual gifts or grace endowments that the Holy Spirit distributes as he wills in 1 Corinthians 12:7 also and following to serve God with my spirit is not to serve God only with my specific being with all of my being but it means to serve with all of my being empowered and actuated by the Holy Spirit. Who is, in, who is in fact the Spirit of Christ himself. He's called the Spirit of Christ who resides in my mortal body. He resides in the members of our body, our human body. And this is the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and will Vivify or make alive our body, whether we have been reduced to ashes or dust or whether you've recently died, God will quicken, revive, vivify, transformatively our bodies in resurrection. So this is the same spirit of holiness according to which God designated Jesus Christ of the line of David to be his own divine son in Romans 1.4. This is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who will vivify or make alive our mortal bodies in romans eight eleven so romans eight eleven helps us to answer the question of the identity of the spirit of holiness in romans one four and the identity of what Paul means by my spirit in romans one nine In Romans 8 9 he says if anyone does not have this spirit he does not belong to Christ if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he is none of his he does not belong to Christ now people use that to condemn believers that's not what Paul's doing at all here in Romans 8 9 he's not throwing a mantle of doubt on the Roman Saints by saying if you don't have the spirit of Christ you are none of his he's doing the opposite He's not throwing a mantle of doubt on the Roman saints, but showing that they do belong to Christ precisely in that they have the Spirit of Christ in them. The Spirit who testifies with their spirit and with ours today that they are the children of God. So Paul is saying that he serves God with his Spirit, which is joined to the Lord and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So all of my being is involved in serving God. But it's all of my being being dissolved, not just involved, but dissolved in union with the Holy Spirit. So we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. We manifest in our mortal bodies the life of Jesus because death works in us. So serving God with my spirit means that I'm both involved and dissolved in the Holy Spirit. Consumed. And so in Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul describes himself and Timothy and all the saints at Philippi with their supervisors and their deacons as, quote, the circumcision meaning that they are the real circumcision who don't require the act of physical circumcision to be justified before God, but he says they are those who serve, Philippians 3.3, 3, and the same word is used, latruo, serve, same word used in Romans 1, nine in the spirit of God. So there's another hint about what Paul means when he's saying I'm serving with my spirit. Yeah, he's serving in his spirit, in the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is my spirit. My human spirit is my spirit. Christ Jesus is my Lord. God the Father is my God. I serve my God with the spirit of Christ, which is also my spirit. It is no longer I, but Christ. In serving God, our spirit, the essence of who we are, the total phenomenal being of what we are is involved and also dissolved. Now, I hope this gets even more clear. I'm dropping another lens for you. Paul says we are the true circumcision who serve in the spirit of God. There it's very explicitly we serve in the spirit of God. And we boast in Christ Jesus, we boast in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves. And then he says, and we have zero confidence in the flesh. Zero tolerance for the lust of the flesh, zero confidence in the power of the flesh. Now all of this is to say that we do not serve in ourselves and with ourselves. It does not say that we do not have what is called a spirit. The human spirit does not say that. We do. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul assures the saints in Thessalonica and in now that they will be totally sanctified spirit, soul, and body. In one, and it's God who does this. The one who calls us will do it. The one who calls us will do it. In one sense, one's own human spirit means one's total being, just as one's own body means one's total being, in Romans 12.1. So when Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, he was entrusting his whole being to God. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which Paul urges in Romans 12.1, we are presenting our whole Being to Him, with our whole being entrusted to God, so that our service is in the Holy Spirit. Never merely our Spirit, but always with. Our whole being enveloped in the spirit of truth and of grace, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the son, the spirit of Jesus Christ. So how do you interpret this little phrase? See, I'm getting I'm going small and I'm going large in Romans Sunday, mostly large. What is Romans the epistle large? What does this little phrase mean going small aim small miss small said the patriot to his children in the movie? That means if you aim small and miss small, that means if you really pay attention to minute exegesis, you're less likely to miss on the bigger things because minute exegesis yields to major understanding. As two of you on separate occasions reminded me of recently. In our famous hall meetings. So when Paul serves with my spirit, I'd capitalize the word S there because he means he serves God with his spirit as joined to the Holy Spirit who maintains him in the sense of awe. Spirit means awe. Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does is maintain in you a sense of awe. But the sense of awe yields to audacity, boldness, Fearlessness in proclamation, fearless creativity, audacity. Isaiah was very bold. He had great audacity, says Romans ten twenty and 21, with great audacity. How could he say to the people of Israel, I am speaking for Yahweh here when I say this. I was found by a people who aren't even seeking me. And on the other hand, I turned, I hold my hands out and stretched out to a people all day long who defy me. But I like what some theologians said recently, that posture is not in vain because the holding out of his arms all day long will bring all of them to him. That's the holding out of the hands of God in Calvary. It's not in vain. Those arms held out will embrace the people who defy him as they embrace the people who did not seek him You gave that very message today in churches, they'd be shocked out of their seats You didn't find God God found you You didn't believe and so he rewarded your belief with salvation he evoked faith in you when you heard the gospel by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. And so to serve of the Spirit means he serves with a sense of awe. And this sense of God produced awe. God produced awe and wonder. Or worship, even we could call it worship, results in a spirit of audacity, boldness, fearlessness, power. For he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound, stable mind. A shalom of heart. To serve God with my spirit is not to do it with my might. But to utterly reject my might and orient myself to the grace of God as the power to serve. What Paul is saying is, "Myself is dissolved in this service." I find that the more we know ourself apart from God, the more we're glad when our self is dissolved in the service of God. And it's only weird, it's very weird when the self is dissolved because then we discover our self in Christ. It is no longer I that live, nevertheless I live. What happened there? Self-discovery through self-inhalation. A continual burnt offering is what we are. You say, well, none of that would make me want to be a preacher. Then good. 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 You still want to be a preacher after this message? You really want to be a preacher. All that myself does in the service of God is wood, hay, and stubble. All that myself does in my own spirit in service to God is wood, hay, stubble. You say, how do you you relate to that? Paul says, hey, I was zealous and blameless according to the law, and I persecuted the church of God. He was both. He served God with his own spirit, his own self. All that myself does in the service of God is wood, hay, and stubble. We who preach do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, says 2 Corinthians 4, 5. All that we do in serving God with our spirit, and that means with all of our being consumed in God's love, in God's spirit, well, that's silver and gold and precious gems. The stuff that the city of God is made of in heaven. So, in closing, I thought of this today. The teacher, Kohalath, his name is, sometimes he's called the preacher, sometimes he's called the teacher. He's the writer of Ecclesiastes. On one level, we may say with the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your strength. That means do it with all your might. Do it with all your being. Ecclesiastes 9.10. But in serving God, we are co-laborers with God. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, whose hand is the strength and the power of God. In which we labor it's not what my hand finds to do I do in my strength it's what God calls me to do I do in his strength strengthening me Paul said I preach I warn every man I teach every man as God effectively works in me Colossians 129 gives us the sense of that Romans 1 9 10. In the service of God, in Christ, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh, the Lord. Not by might. So when Paul says, God whom I serve with my spirit, he's not saying God whom I serve with my strength, God whom I serve with my might, but God whom I serve with his spirit, who is my spirit too. You see what I'm doing here? I'm trying to show you that serving God involves our total being while it dissolves our total being. You say that's a paradox. Bingo. Christianity is a paradox. God is an incomprehensible God. I don't care how much you think you get to know him in this life. You still don't know him. He's incomprehensible without the spirit. You can't look up into the sky and get the right idea. Those who looked up into the sky and saw the stars and saw the attributes of God as displayed in creation distorted that knowledge into idolatry and into practices that are socially, sexually destructive in every possible way. But you have not come to learn Christ that way. We know God in Christ that may be the subject on Sunday. Thank you, Father. Thank you, my Father, through Jesus Christ, for giving me a title for Sunday. Maybe. So, it is by extra I don't say extraordinary, I'll say extraordinary, grace, grace, that the mountain of our own adequacy and competence becomes a plane, and the plane is the plane of grace in Zechariah 4, 7. Because I am what I am by the grace of God, and I labor by the grace that was given to him, given to me. And Paul said it too. I am what I am by the grace of God, and I did not receive the grace of God in vain. We are not competent in ourselves to be able ministers of the new covenant. But our competency is from God. 2nd Corinthians 3 5 and he goes on to say he means God the spirit all the way from 6 through 18 the Lord is that spirit to serve God in my spirit there'll be no service tomorrow night so I'm going to go five minutes over to serve God in my spirit or with my spirit is indeed to serve with all of my being which is subject to God's doing Listen to that sentence again. To serve God in my spirit or with my spirit is to serve with all of my being which is subject to God's doing. In that sense, all of my being is both employed in the service to God and dissolved and sacrificed in service to God. That's why Romans 12 1 urges us to make an offering to God of our body and by definition our body is the total phenomenon of our being. I don't just give God my body and then my mind goes away from God. In fact, I present my body as a sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice for the renewing of my mind We're talking here about the totality of the person. And then Paul goes on to say, that's your reasonable service. And the word he uses for service is the same word he uses for service when he says, I serve God. La trea, only it's in in the noun form. It's your reasonable service. Why is it your reasonable service to present your body as a living sacrifice, to present your whole being as a sacrifice to be consumed like the consuming of the lamb why is that reasonable why is it reasonable well it's not unreasonable of God but very reasonable for him to ask for all of our being to be at his disposal because he has made us a kingdom of priests by giving his all for us when the father gave his son he gave all of his being to us and sacrificed all that he is. It's only reasonable. That he asks for all of us. Our reasonable service is reasonable. Because our whole being is at the disposal of God. And of Christ. Who is the servant of God. And there we have Isaiah chapters 40. and ver- Chapters 40 to 55. With all of this water having passed over the dam tonight. Then we can now say. That there is a Distinct. Echo of Romans one eight, with all the world being apprised of the faith of the Roman saints, with Romans sixteen sixteen B. We didn't get there last Wednesday. Let's look there as we close sixteen sixteen B in which Paul says all the churches of Christ salute you. You see the pincer movement you see that from one end. He says all the world has heard about your faith and at the end He says all the churches in Christ salute you Pincer movement pushing toward the center, you know, what's at the center the unchained gospel the gospel unchained I may be in prison Paul said But the word of God is not chained In fact, sometimes the more we're chained In fact, I say the more I'm chained to my desk and to my study, the more the word is free and freed as I speak it. All the churches of Christ salute you. Remember last week we spent the whole evening on this one thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a flu season. Make that a holy fist bump. A gloved fist bump maybe. So the last thing I'll say is all the world may have heard about the faith of all the saints in Rome but all the churches in Christ who are not of this world but called out of it salute you thank you father for this opportunity we thank you for this gathering of believers on this night every night is a sacred night every night is Christmas every time we meet is Christmas because then the son of God Christ is formed in us born in us And we know this meaning, Father, so we don't have to set apart a day, although there's nothing wrong with that either. But we thank you, and we thank you for the privilege of laboring, the laboring of those who teach and preach, because it is with a view to a mother's labor until Christ is formed in us. And I thank you for this congregation, Father, whose expressions of love and consolation and kindness have demonstrated to me recently the very Christ whom we worship. They have manifested the very life of Jesus in mortal bodies. And so we see that Christ is being formed in us.